This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you and sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday now, and we thought you might like to hear some of our best stories from 2021. In this programme, we bring you the final part of Bittersweet, interviews with laid-off Cadbury workers which have been voiced by professional actresses. And staying with the dramatic arts, Bill Southworth interviews Bill Menlove, one of the pioneers of professional theatre in Dunedin. When, despite its good production performance, the American corporation Mondelez closed Dunedin's iconic Cadbury's factory, the distress of the workers who saw their jobs disappear went deeper than many realised. Their pain has been captured by a local drama company called Talking House, which recorded interviews with some of the women who'd worked there. Here is the final part of its production, which it called Bitter Sweet. The excerpts from workers' interviews are voiced by professional actresses. The year before the redundancy announcement, there was like, every day, like as a frontline leader, I'd walk into the office and the day shift frontline leader would turn around and she'd go, oh, there's there's another person gone today from the office block. There's another one gone. And you were like, what the hell? What the hell's going on here? And there was like, there's there's another one gone. And it's like, what's what's going on? And there was just like, there was like about 12 of them. And it was like they were just wiping, something was happening. Then they walked in one day and they said, we're closing Cadbury Mm. World. You know, we're either going to close it now or we can close it in six weeks or something. And then... They're out of a freaking job. So they, they so they closed it that then. day. Yeah, no, no warning. We stopped. We we were watching the progress from the calf. We could see the progress next door on the dairy, and then all of a sudden there was no contractors. We remember we all thought that's weird. That's weird. When is it? When are they going to start doing something? You know, but of course they never did, and it was never going to. Because even in the redundancy year, Mondelez went to the fat, went you know to the management team, and they were like, "No, we want we we're wanting like another three million dollars on top of this redundancy." They just were squeezing. They were squeezing the juice out of the factory, like they weren't doing any property management on the factory. The factory, the factory leaked like a blooming sieve. Oh my gosh! It was so much water starting to come in the building, like when it rained. It, it got quite awkward in the end because of all the health and safety. You had your hearing on, your glasses. I mean, I brought up with, with the company, you know, your health and safety is causing health and safety, you know, issues because people's glasses were steaming up. You couldn't hear, you know, you couldn't hear. It, it just got crazy over the years towards the end. I, I was union vice president at Cadbury, so... um when we were told to all stop our machines and come down to this meeting, it was like, oh, this doesn't sound good because I didn't know anything about it. And, of course, everyone, it was like, stop, you to go home, 
um, there, there'll be an announcement in the morning about what's going on. So, and everyone's talking, and and I'm getting bombarded with messages. You know, what's going on? What's what's? I says honestly, I don't know. And even if I did, I couldn't tell you. But I d- actually don't know what's going on, and I don't think it's good. So it was a real shock. But I think we were all on the edge of our seat once it got sold to Craft. We were all stable and happy and earning good money. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was like, yeah. Well, the day we heard everyone went to the pub sort of thing and I was feeling down about it. A lot of people, they were having a drink and I I didn't want to. I, I just couldn't com- comprehend. I mean, I bought my own home. Uh, I I was a single parent with one child. Um, he was he was nearly five when I started at Cadbury, so uh, and twenty one when I finished. So, yeah. Um, but 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 still, I bought my house in two thousand and seven, I think. So I paid most of it. You know, you know, I I'd done the hard yards, but it was just quite disappointing that I'd worked so hard and done all that, and then shit, what am I going to do now? But but then. Through every bad situation, I, I always try to find something to be grateful for. So I think, well, without Cadbury's, we wouldn't have a home, you know, uh, and be where we were today, like living comfortably, really, and at that stage. So it was all good. Once I got made permanent, um, it wasn't long after that, I was asked to be one of the reps on site, which would have been... 2002 and um yeah so I've been a reunion a union rep the whole time I've been here there I really enjoyed looking after the staff when they had problems yeah we've seen a few things in our time there and then I ended up being redundancy support coordinator which I thoroughly enjoyed um, it was very rewarding because I I went around everybody in the factory and my job was to find out what people wanted to do when they left Cadbury's. The announcement, the day they did it on the Thursday, was at the 16th of February. The night before on the Wednesday, I was sitting in my microvert office and... um. We, we, yeah, sitting in the mick of her office and Mike, my manager, rung me and he, he was like, Megan, where, and he was whispering. He's like, Megan, where are you? And I was like, I'm in the office. He's like, is there anyone with you? And I was like, no, I'm all by myself. And he's like, oh, can you come down and see me? And it was like, why are you, you, you know, when someone whispers to you, you feel like whispering back. It's like, where are you? Are you like, and I thought, this is weird. You are listening to the final part of the drama Bittersweet on Heritage Matters. Bittersweet was created by the production company Talking House and is based on interviews done with the Cadbury workers who were laid off in March of 2018. I went downstairs and I went to walk into the green room and to my surprise, the other two frontline leaders from Night Shift were there. The... There was one on annual leave, so there was only three of us on nights that that night, and the the three from Bat Shift were already on site an hour early, 
and Mike was there, our manager, and the HR manager, and the quality manager was there. And I thought, what's going? You thought, what? This is weird. What's going on here? And so anyway, he sat us down at a table, and then they had these white paper fold paper boxes, and he lifted it, opened it up, lifted out these pieces of paper, A4 pieces of paper. There was two sets, and they were scripts. And he then proceeded to go through the scripts and read the detail on them to us. And these scripts were for us, one for bat shift, one for night shift. And so we had to take these scripts and go up to the floor and read them out to our staff. So he read, he read through them and kind of, it kind of just like, yeah, it was like, it was kind of whirlwind because they went through it quite quickly because as soon as they'd done that, then the management team, they, they bolted, they were out of there. So we bolted back to the floor and I grabbed, I grabbed my senior, I pulled her in the office because I thought I'm going to need help with this to pull this, you know, pull, pull everyone because we had a lot of character on the floor. So without them asking too many questions, if I've got the help of another person to pull everyone across, that's got to be easier. So I said to her, look, I've got to stand up and read this to the staff. And I showed it to her and she was just like, yeah, yeah, we stood in front of them and I read the script and I said, it was like a paragraph and it said, look, we're shutting down the production lines. We're doing it safely. Uh, bat shift have been advised right now not to come on site. Uh, so they've been told right now they will not be coming on site. At midnight, there will be no one on site within the factory. The factory will be empty. You are all required to be on site at 10 o'clock in the morning for an all-employees meeting, which is going to start at 10.15 a.m. in the morning, and it's your utmost importance that you be there. And once everything is um, shut down safely, then you are entitled to leave the factory and you'll be given full pay to midnight. And then there were like four prompting questions with answers. <laughs> and what I was supposed to do was stand there and wait for my staff to come back with a question. And I was supposed to match it to one of the answers on the script. <laughs> and honestly, I just thought in my head and in my heart, I just thought, if you Mondelez International, if you Cadbury, so no. So I just went through the question and the answer, and I just read it to them. The question and the answer, and the question, and I don't know if that's, that. that's just what I felt I had to do. And then when I got to the end of it, they were, it, it was like telling someone, it, it was like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want this to be offensive to anyone, but it was like telling someone they had cancer for the first time, and they were terminally ill. They were in shock. It was a real struggle to go in and out when all the factory, all the, all, all the machinery and stuff, the the floors were clear and the whole atmosphere was just gone. It was just, my gosh, why did I stay? Um, but I felt like I wanted to or I needed to because I was a union vice president and, and that's what I should do and to make sure no one was left, you know, um, with any issues. But it was just, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit much to handle, yeah. But I did it. And I don't know, it just, 
unbelievable, really, walking out that door knowing you're, ne- you're never going to go back. Most of our managers were devastated. I mean, Mike really hit him hard. Christy. Mike, Mike, Christy. Christy. Hit him hard. But, yeah, no, um, I know that really because the whole atmosphere of Cadbury's was family and yeah. Talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> this weather is just. <laughs> I mean, it was just a time where everybody came together. Jesus, Donna. <laughs> it, it, it was an end of an era. It is. It's the end of an era, end of our life as we knew it. Good job, good wages, good conditions. Good for Dunedin. Yeah. You know. It was. Affected yeah. so many people, not Everybody just us. knows somebody who worked at mm. Cadbury's. Yeah. All the contract workers. It was people who bought milk, milk mm. food. It was everybody it affected. It was a whole roll. Roll. Roll up. Packing materials and all that yeah. stuff. Anything to do with the production of or the finished goods, you know. It was just, it was just amazing how many people it affected. We were the most productive um, Cadbury's factory in the Southern Hemisphere. We, per person, we put out more than anyone. I mean, even in Australia. Beat them hands down all the time. And that's why we couldn't understand why this was happening. It was one of the best times of my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad I experienced the old girl. I guess I've had my good time that 17 years. It was great time in my life. And it was good for me, my son, because we didn't need for anything, you know. And we gained a house, which is worth a whole lot more now than it was then. So, yeah, everything has its pros and cons, I suppose. Yeah, I'm a support worker now, working on my level three health and well-being, so, and working my way to mental health, hopefully. (laughs) In 2019, I went back into the building to have a look with one of our staff members, and I was, I was nervous about going, because I thought I'd cry um, and get really emotional, and, and she was like, no, it'll be fine, Megan. We'll, we'll go back into the factory. And so, but when we, the, the first thing, when you got back into the car, you felt this anxiety come over you. And it was the same feeling that I got when I was a frontline leader under Mondelez. You felt this anxiety roll over your shoulders every day about going to work under Mondelez because you were like, as you got in the car and then you drove around Andy Bay down Portsmouth Drive, you were like, oh, my gosh, okay, so what's gone wrong today? What are we going to have to go in and explain today or what are we going to have to go in and double-check that we've crossed our T's and dotted our I's with this company? Because we always said to the staff, let's make sure we do everything right and we give them no reason to ever shut us down, no reason at all. We're going to make sure we do this right. And so the staff were amazing. They always lifted their standard. They were just amazing. Anyway, the quality manager said to me one day, he said, oh, my gosh, Megan. He said, when you get in your (laughs) – the amount of times you have to come down here and explain. He said, 
when you get in your car, sometimes when you're driving to work, he said, do you feel like coming to work or do you just feel like driving into the harbour? And I was like, I, it, honestly, that didn't surprise me because it was like, yeah, yeah. It, it didn't surprise me because it's like, yeah, sometimes it feels like that. You feel because you've got this this weight of Mondelise and the standard that they expected from the staff was through the roof. So then we went into the factory on this day um, with a couple of the hospital um, team guys and it was amazing because the factory was, it was still clean and it was like we'd just cleaned the floors and walked out. It was so clean in there and the plants were still there, the b and the Mickey. <laughs> and yet, you could hear the laughter coming out the walls in the building. <laughs> and you sit there and you think, how could Mondelez do that to our people down here? To our country? How could they take away something that was like so successful? It had just such a a great culture to it, a great vibe. It had such great culture. There was so much kindness, laughter and love and respect for each other inside the building. And that's the kind of culture that we really need in our society. So who the hell do they think they are to take that away? The interviews with the Cadbury workers in Bittersweet were voiced by Cheryl Amos, Karen Elliott, Claire Adams and Jodie Bate. The director was Karen Elliott. Talking House's production was made possible by assistance from the Dunedin City Council, Creative New Zealand and Otago University's Humanities Division Performing Arts Fund. The recent closure of the Fortune Theatre has seemed to threaten the tradition of professional drama in Dunedin. The Globe Theatre in London Street continues to carry the thespians' banner, but it too is engaged in an uphill struggle with its finances. It all seems a far cry from the days when Bernard Esquilent and Bill Menlove started the first professional theatre in the city. Bill Southworth has been talking to Bill Menlove about those days. When Bernard Esquilent and Bill Menlove decided to take a punt and combine their talents and finances in order to set up the city's first professional theatre company, it probably seemed both a brave and a foolish thing to do. However, it succeeded and was the beginning of a successful theatre company known as the Southern Comedy Players. The Southern Comedy Players toured throughout the country, bringing to country audiences well-known comedies by playwrights such as Noel Coward. What is not so well known is that they turned a friendly society's hall in Albany Street into what is now known as the Playhouse. It flourished as a venue for professional theatre for several years, before Bernard Esquilent and Bill Menlove decided to go on the road again, this time being known as the Southern Players. Bernard is now deceased, but I spoke to William Menlove about these years of early professional drama in Dunedin. I met Bernard Esquilant uh, at a drama festival in Invercargill and we struck up a friendship and uh, we asked him to do a play for the, the Lumsden 
dramatic society and we were both smitten with the theatre bug, of course. So we got together and we hatched a plan to form a regional touring company just doing the Lower South Island and never expecting that it would get to the size that it did get eventually. And that was the Southern Comedy Players. That was the Southern Comedy Players. But you yeah. never had a theatre at that stage. We did didn't you? have a theatre, but we had rehearsal rooms in Rattray Street to start with, which was above a um, Chinese laundry, and uh, they had <laughs> they had cages downstairs with hen, hens on them, in them, ready to be consumed next door by the, uh, the Chinese um, restaurant. But had to bring all our scenery up and down steps, quite steep stairs. But it was a good rehearsal space. We had uh, plenty of room for rehearsing, and there was another large room for um, set construction and so on. And so, how long did you operate without a designated theatre? Well, 1957 was our first production, and 59 we took out a tour of Saturdays right through New Zealand. That was our first foray into the North Island. And by that stage, we needed more space. So we looked around and the Forester's Lodge in Albany Street was available. So we went and had a look at it and it seemed to be ideal, ideal for purposes. It had, uh, but a Forester's Lodge is, is not a theatre. You must have no, had to no. do a lot of work. Oh, oh, well, it was just a large room downstairs and another large room upstairs and that was about the extent of it. And, uh, of course, they were a friendly society uh, which the main thing, thing seemed to be providing uh, help for people to save money to pay for funerals at a later stage. And uh, That's right. They kind of predated social welfare, didn't they? Did they did really, in a way, yeah, yes, and, yes. And they had yeah. pension benefits and, as True. you say, funeral benefits and yeah, so on. Yeah, yeah. So you were faced with this building that wasn't a theatre. What no. did you do with it? Well, uh, well, rehearsed on the ground floor and... Uh, we we were that was there for quite some time before we decided that we could build a theatre into it. Of course, we were only renting at this stage, so it wasn't really ours. Although that they only met the foresters only met once a month, so the theatre virtually was all ours. Nineteen sixty three, we decided to. Um, build a theatre inside the, in the ground floor. It sounds like quite an undertaking. Can you tell us how well, you did it? Well, it was. It was pretty major. It, uh, you know, we did a lot of the actual work ourselves, painting and decorating and so on, and uh, uh, some of the cast members helped with some of the uh, construction. Bill Hargraves was a, a carpenter by trade, so he was pretty good in the construction side of things. It was seating 110 people when we finished the construction of it, and uh, scarlet red chairs and uh, midnight blue um, theatre walls and uh, a, a nice red velvet curtain. And uh, we opened, the, the theatre opened with a Bruce Mason season. But which plays of his did oh, you do? The plays. He, he, did, um, he came down and he did his End of the Golden Weather to start with and then he did a, a slick uh, late night review and then he continued on and he directed his own play, The Pahutakawa Tree. And that ran for weeks in the playhouse. We couldn't satisfy demand. 
and uh, we ended up by having to transfer to the concert chamber, which is now the Glenroy Auditorium, of course. Well, you must have been delighted. Oh, we were. It was just, and he was delighted too. Was, he was absolutely lionised by the, the university, and you know, it was, he had a marvellous time while he was down here. Apart from Bruce Mason's plays, can you recall any that you particularly remember? Well, um, well, our Charlie's Aunt was our, our first production, which we felt was a good opener because it was a farce and would appeal to a large number of people. And uh, we had Patrick Carey produced it for us, and it was very, very well done. It had three sets, which was pretty incredible, you know, when you're first going out on a tour, uh, to have to carry all that amount of scenery. And uh, That's uh, right. You would have had to have created the... The mechanisms for pulling up and down all the scenes oh, or flats yeah, and so on. And Patrick had invented the system of using Meccano, and uh, it all had to be bolted together. And we got to Timaru, and it was left behind in Timaru. We just didn't need it. You know. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the sets had, had to be pretty adaptable, and, and we had a big Thames truck, a uh, Bedford truck, which carried all their scenery. We had huge fundraising programs to, to yes, do Yes, where this. did you get the money from? Well, uh, we started off the, the theatre company with a capital of £3,000, would you believe it? And uh, that was provided by Bernard and myself and members of our two families. And that provided enough to, to uh, pay for, theater, for rehearsal wages and for th- uh, rentals and for all the paraphernalia that you needed for touring. We we took out a substantial loan from our bank and that's when we went ahead with the whole thing. And then we had all these fundraising events like we had a dinner for 250 people at the University Union and uh, that was a big help. And we had a street fair uh, outside and this part of Albany Street was closed and we had all sorts of entertainment and things, art for sale and so on. And Uh, the the work you had to do, presumably on the ground floor, you had all the seating, but you would have required changing rooms and lighting boxes and all that sort of stuff. You see, we we had very little space with that first theatre, but when we uh, went into the Foresters Hall and put that new auditorium and we also increased the size of the stage and backstage and, and it made it much more possible to store, store scenery and so on. And eventually you moved on. Why did you do that? Well, it had been a long slog and, you know, and once we got into the, thing, the process of having to apply for grants from the theatre trust that was set up and so on, it became all... It was never something that we envisaged that we would have to do. And when you first started, were there any other professional theatre groups in Dunedin or were you the pioneers? No, we were, we were the first professional theatre company in the South Island. So no Globe, no Fortune, no, none no, of that? No, no, none of that. No, no, they all, they've all followed. So yeah. you and Bernard are the great drama pioneers <laughs> of Dunedin, <laughs> huh? I guess so. But, you know, it was incredible looking back on it. it just our enthusiasm just carried it all along. Dunedin drama pioneer Bill Menlove was talking to Bill Southworth. The Playhouse Theatre continues to flourish and is the home of the Dunedin Repertory Society. This programme has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members, It can be contacted at southernheritage 
southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.